Alrighty then, a little bit of a holiday hangover, some of you guys maybe. I know I'm there for sure. Uh, great to be with you guys today. Um, I don't know if you remember, I was here about three months ago or so, and they invited me back, which is a good thing. So we'll see how it goes after this one. If you don't see me again, you'll know why. Um, but yeah, so glad to be here with you. Thank you for sharing uh, your pastor Caleb with us this morning. He's actually speaking at the Irvine campus, and he's doing an incredible job. So thank you for letting us uh, uh, share with uh, the gift that he has in teaching this morning over there at Irvine. So, But I am thrilled to be with you guys. So like I did say, though, a little bit of a holiday hangover. Anybody else experiencing that? Just a little bit? It's a crazy season, right? Just a lot of stuff going on. A lot of parties back and forth. Um, presents opened and wrapped and pursued and hunted down and all that fun stuff. Uh, coming down off of a serious sugar rush, which I've been experiencing the last couple of weeks. My parents are in town and my mom, when she cooks, the only ingredients I swear that she uses are sugar, butter, and Crisco. And then chocolate or whatever else the, the other thing is, puts it in there, puts it in the oven, and it's delicious. But really, a, a fun time, but also pretty, pretty much of a, a hectic time, running back and forth all over the place. And I don't know about you, but after the last present is opened and the last party is just done, you have an opportunity to finally, at last, sit on that couch with that lazy boy, and then you realize how flipping tired you actually really are. And then not so long after that, you also realize that, bam, 2014 is right around the corner. I don't know about you, but I can't believe that this is the last Sunday in 2013. I also can't believe that we're nearly a decade and a half into uh, this new millennium. That's crazy. I thought for sure by now we'd all have hoverboards and spacesuits and, and all that other stuff. It hasn't quite happened yet, but we'll get there. But yeah, th this time of year is interesting. The pace of life is fast. It comes very fast. And, and if you're not careful, you can get caught up in the busyness if you have a hard time reading those signs of when to rest and when to take a break. I was reminded of a story I heard recently of two elderly women that were driving down an old country road in Oklahoma. Everybody ever been there? Old country road in Oklahoma? I was during Thanksgiving. It was a lot of fun. Um, but they're driving down this road, Highway 7. And as they're driving down this little dirt road, out of the rearview mirror, they see a, a police car. The siren begins to go off. And they get pulled over, and the police officer does the whole thing, comes alongside them. Excuse me, ma'am, do you know why I pulled you over today? And she says, well, well no, officer. Was I, was I going too fast? And the officer says, no, actually, ma'am, you were going a little too slow. You see, you were only going five miles an hour, and that's pretty dangerous on this road. And the lady says, well, officer, the sign says seven, seven miles an hour, right? That's how fast I'm supposed to be going. <laughs> the officer says, no, no, that's highway seven. That, that's, high, that, that's not the speed. That's the highway, ma'am. And then she says, oh, wow, that explains a whole lot. And the officer says, well, what, what do you mean? And he points to her friend who's in the back laying and looks like she's been sick for a while. She says, well, you see, we just got off of Highway 175. So my friend is, is not feeling too well. But this time of year is like that. The signs say, go, 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 shop, shop, bye, bye, party here, eat this, do that, be here. And if we're not careful, we can get caught up in all of those things and have a hard time finding rest and finding peace. And then all of a sudden, New Year. And what happens when a New Year happens? We're supposed to make these things called what? New Year's resolutions. Everybody got theirs all figured out already? Yeah? Should we guess what each other's are? Let's see. Jairus was in, 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 he was in here earlier, and uh, I guess what his was. It was quite embarrassing for him. You'll have to maybe ask some friends that were there for that one. Um, <clears throat> but we all make New Year resolutions. Most of us do. And it's a good time of a year to start out with resolve and say, you know, I'm going to stop some things or I'm going to start some things and I'm going to make a change here. I'm going to make a change there. And I was reading recently the top five New Year's resolutions for 2014. And you could probably guess most of these. And 
some of these uh, might be present in the room, but the fifth thing is spend more time with friends. That's a good thing to do. Uh, fourthly, make more money and get out of debt. Sometimes those two go hand in hand, not always if you don't use your money wisely. Uh, quit smoking. Uh, number two, get organized. Anybody up for that one? Yeah, I'm up for that one. And this one, of course, this one gets me. Uh, the number one New Year's resolution is lose more, lose more weight, right? After having all the sugar and the cookies and everything else, that's not a, not a bad thing to do. And it's one that we all kind of jump on. Um, I was working out. I like to say when I go work out to large groups of people because I feel like I get more credit for that because I don't do it very often. So let me tell you, last week I worked out two times. Um, I went swimming and I played basketball. That totally counts. Uh, but at my gym, it was completely empty because there was nobody there. But I guarantee you, if by some miracle I end up going in the next two weeks with regularity for the month of January, that that gym will be packed full of people who have made that resolution to, to lose weight. Um, reminds me of a husband and a wife story, which might, might as well be my story as well. Uh, he made the resolution to lose weight, so he said, okay, i got to figure out how much I actually weigh because i got to figure out my starting point. So he was in his bathroom standing on his, you know, his little scale, and he was sucking in his tummy, like really intensely, just you know, really sucking it in. And his wife comes down the hallway and says, honey, what are, you, what are you doing? You know that's not going to help you at all. It's not going to help you lose weight. You're still going to weigh the same. And he said, well, honey, it will help me at least read the numbers, and that does something so, so I can see there. But the sad reality, I don't mean to burst your bubble, <laughs> but the sad reality is about 40% of us will make New Year's resolutions. I tend to think that's probably a little bit higher. And out of that number, 30% will fail after two weeks. 40% will fail after one month. And 60% will fail after six months. And most of our resolutions, they're kind of outward expressions of something that's actually happening inwardly. Like we think if I could just resolve and and make this change, this appearance of a change, then everything will be okay. When actually there's probably something that's going on internally that needs to switch and to change before the external can become true. But a lot of us, we resolve. We sit and we say, I'm going to make this happen. This is the year where I will make this change. I like to think of myself as somewhat disciplined, but I can't tell you how many times I've started things and come to the end of myself and been able to follow through with discipline for trying to make a change or trying to achieve a goal. And if I'm honest, I've even let that creep into my spiritual life. You know, I was born and raised in church. Uh, my parents are pastors. I went to Christian school, K through 16. Hey, there's a kid down there. How'd he get down there? <laughs> that doesn't mean that I went to high school two extra years, college included. I went four extra years. I went to college, K through 16, Christian home, the whole deal. And somewhere along the way, I began to adapt this mentality that if I could just be the right person, if I could just make all the moral right decisions, if I could abstain from certain activities and, and be this sort of external appearance of what I think it means to be a pastor's kid or what I think it means to be a Christian, then everything will be okay. And not only will it be okay, but actually at the end of the day, God will owe me something. Because look, look what I've done. I've abstained from alcohol. You know, I was able to wait till marriage, and, and God, now you, you owe me something. But that kind of relationship is a very damaging relationship. Because at the end of the day, if we go in and of our strength to make changes, even good changes, we'll be found wanting. Because there's something inside of us that is always going to cause attention. We're always going to come to the end of ourselves. And actually, we need something greater. We need a greater power than just our own effort to help us receive grace and salvation. Um, Paul, in his letter to the church in Galatia, 
He talks a lot about this tension, as he does in a lot of his letters to the churches that were started up during that time. A lot of these congregations, and we, we would know this, understand this, consisted of, of Jewish believers and of Gentile believers, right? So the Gentiles were one that came through faith uh, solely in their belief of Jesus Christ. They received the message of grace and salvation that opened up the doors and says, look, it's for everyone now. There is no exclusivity that all can receive grace. But actually, there was a set of Jewish believers, particularly in the church in Galatia that was called, they were called the Judaizers, that said, well, th that's true. There is grace, and you could receive that, but you have to do what we did. I mean, we're, we're following the law of Moses to a T. We're following everything that he told us to do. We're making all the right moral choices. We've been circumcised. Does that sound like a good idea for anybody? Maybe not so much at that point in our life. Um, we're abstaining from these certain kinds of foods. And yes, grace is there, but also you gotta, you got to make some right decisions. You have to do some things. And it caused a tension in this community. And it really comes to a head here when Paul writes this in Galatians 2.16. He, he just goes out from the beginning and says, look, I'm going to make my case clear. This is what I want to say throughout the rest of my letter. <clears throat> we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Right moral living is a good thing. But right moral living in a posture that says, now I am owed something, and I have done this, and I have achieved, and now I will receive something, doesn't work in the gospel story. It's not up to our effort. It's up to what we receive. The law binds, it constricts, it shows us actually our weakness. Grace brings freedom, salvation. It brings a relationship that's based on what God has done and not on our own effort. And that's amazing. That's a wonderful truth, uh, truth to talk about the grace that we can receive. But we have to ask the question, how do we experience this freedom that grace offers? If there's another way outside of my own strength and this way is grace, then how do I experience that? How do I live that out? So what we want to do is we want to look here at Galatians 5. Paul says four things here in Galatians 5 that I believe are true for us. And if we embrace these things, that will actually help us as we set out in this new year to resolve to make changes, to realize that there's another way to do these things outside of ourselves. So in Galatians 5, starting at verse 16, he says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit. And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. And then he begins to say, here's the outward workings of the flesh. This is what the flesh produces. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But thank you, Lord, that there's another way. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. There is no limit to these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. 
Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying uh, one another, each other. And then skipping ahead to 6, 8. <clears throat> whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. And whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. So we've talked about this law and this grace tension. There's another tension that Paul puts out here for us. Law and grace and flesh and spirit. Two ways to operate in our own strength or in the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at these four things that he, that he talks about, how we're supposed to live with the Holy Spirit. But before we do that, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, for some of us, that conjures up a lot of different images, right? You know, back in the day in the church I was raised in, we used to call him the Holy Ghost. Ooh, that's kind of terrifying, right? Or when we think about the Holy Spirit, maybe we think about the extremes and the abuses of, of the Holy Spirit. And, and for some of us, maybe, you know, we're cool with God the Father, God the Son, but the Holy Spirit, that's kind of like the, the weird uncle who wears the crazy Hawaiian shirt and, like, sandals with the socks, right? That's like the weird part of the Trinity. Well, no, there's nothing more normative than embracing a life that's lived and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus, particularly in John's Gospel, is telling his disciples that he's getting ready to leave, that he's going to ascend to the Father. But don't worry, because I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but I'm going to send you another one to be with you, to guide you, to comfort you, and to lead you into all truth. And when he talks about sending another in John 14, he's not talking about like the cheap imitation of the same kind, right? Like maybe some of you guys, did you get bummed when you got opened the present? And it wasn't an iPhone. iPhone was spelled with an F or something. You're like, what is this? This is, this is not what I ordered at all. What's going on here? The Holy Spirit isn't like that. Actually, that word another means one just like me, another of the same kind, that he would not leave us sent behind, that the Holy Spirit is an extension of God the Father. He's an extension of, of God the Son, and that he makes all the difference in our lives. I love at the end of, of, of uh, Luke's gospel when and even of Matthew's gospel, we get our commission to, to, to go and to, and to uh, make known disciples throughout the earth, right? And then in Acts, we get the record of all the things of how that was possible. And the only thing that happened, the only difference between these disciples at the end of the gospels and what happened in, in, in Acts 2 onwards is they followed this simple command from Jesus. Here it is, really simple. Wait. <laughs> well, wait for what? Wait for power from on high. Wait for the Holy Spirit to empower you to be my witness, to be one who lives for me, to be one who makes known the works of what you've seen, of what you've experienced. So, so the Holy Spirit is a normative thing. He's given to us to guide us, to teach us, to empower us, and to equip us to live this life. So Paul here goes on emphasizing four things about the Holy Spirit. And I'm thankful that he doesn't say, look, here's the tension, flesh and spirit, law and grace, go figure it out. No, he actually says four key things for us. Starting in verse 16, he says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit. I've been doing some Greek studies on that word walk, and you'll never believe what it means. Any guesses? It means walk. Simple, right? I love when it's easy like that. And I love that picture, that imagery, walking by the Spirit. Because for us, it means that we go from place to place, right? That it's not contained in this experience here at the Huntington Beach Library or in our rooted groups or in our life groups, but actually we walk with and by the Holy Spirit in every context, in every situation, in every relationship that we have. That we carry that with us. That there is no such thing as spiritual activity and, and the other kind of secular earthly activity. That actually all things are spiritual, that every moment is, that whatever you set out to accomplish, let it be guided, let it be directed by 
the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Secondly, he says this in verse 18. Be led by the Spirit, for you are not under the law. The law, again, is, is almost like a guardian, as a parent that would hold the hand of a child to show them the way to go. And, and when they get out of line, they would you know, pull them back in and discipline them, making sure they're, they're going the right way. And, and really, that's what the law is like. The law helps us. It guides us because we are incapable of doing it ourselves. But really, the law exposes our sin. It shows us that we're incapable of making these right decisions and that we are in need of something greater. So he says, you're not under that anymore, but be led by the Spirit. I love that he talks about led, and Paul could have rightly said follow, and that, that would have been good too, but I love for this context that he chooses the word led, because when I think about following, I think almost like the, the pace car at the Indy 500. Any race car fans? No, me either. I know. It's okay. <laughs> but I think about that, that pace car and the cars that are behind it, and, and they're using their gas, and they kind of have to, you know, bumping into each other and make sure that they're following and they're on the right path, and they have to make sure that they're, they're in line with everybody else but he uses the word uh, be led instead of follow. And for me, that conjures up images of almost like a locomotive, right? Where we're connected to that. And it's actually the power of the Holy Spirit that moves us on from place to place. That following often is up to us and our effort. But being led by, it conjures up being connected to a source of power that's greater than ours. A source that compels us, a source that moves us a source that we're dependent on that instead of dependent on our power. So be led by. We don't follow in our own strength. We are led by his power. We are compelled by it, by a force that is greater than our own. Thirdly, in verse 25, Paul says this, keep in step with the Spirit. Walk and keep in step with the Spirit. And this is where, if I'm honest, my efforts work-based mentality starts to kick in, Okay. Uh, so we talked about being led and living by, and that's all great. We stay connected. But now we're talking about keeping steps. So here's the part where, all right, it's up to us. It's up to our effort. We have to do something. We have to make a right choice. And you know what I think about when I hear the word keeping step? I think about dancing. You know what I'm horrible at? Why are you laughing? <laughs> dancing. <laughs> it's true. Um, I'm 6'4". I got very long limbs. And if dancing was just based from the head up, like that, that's pretty good, right? But when you got to get the other things involved, not so good, not so much. I don't know who had this idea. My wife and I, we grew up in the Bay Area. Ten years ago, we, or she, had the idea that we would go on a date in San Francisco to a salsa dancing club. I heard the word salsa, so I was like, okay, let's, let's go give that a try. And she said, you know, there's going to be dancing, and I'm prideful, and, you know, I'm a guy. It's like, okay, I can figure this out. I'm somewhat athletic. I'm sure I could make this work. And, she's, and then, you know, we went with our, our friends who were like professional salsaritas. I think that's the official term. I'm not sure. They said, look, we're going to, uh, that might not be real, uh, we're going to go for an hour instruction, and they're going to show us how to, how to dance. And after that, the dance floor will be open, and everybody's going to show up, and you'll have figured it out by then. I said, okay, that sounds, that sounds great enough. And let me tell you, that was probably the worst hour of my life, <laughs> a real down part in our relationship. I was stepping on my wife's feet the whole time, throwing her places where she wasn't meant to be thrown. We ended up yelling at each other, having a big argument. We were frustrated with one another, and our friends were over here enjoying the night. And I'm over here yelling at my wife. She's yelling at me. And actually, I spent most of the night at the salsa bar after that and not on the salsa dance floor because I was just over it. It was not a good experience, which reminds me of our first date. Um, I've had some series of bad dates. 
the first date that we ever had, we were living in Santa Cruz, and we decided to go miniature golfing at Neptune's Kingdom by the boardwalk, the two-story uh, miniature golf place, which is amazing. And she beat me at miniature golf. Uh, just a word for girls, if you're looking to land in a relationship, let the man win, okay? I promise. It'll, <laughs> it'll, go, it'll go better for you. So she beats me, and I'll never forget walking away from there, tearing up the scorecard, putting it in the trash can. We didn't talk all the way back to the dorm rooms, and now... We're married, so it worked out somehow. I'm not sure how that worked. But I'm so glad that the Holy Spirit doesn't operate like that. That he doesn't grab us and grip us and say, look, stay here. Follow this. Stop stepping on my toes. Stop getting things wrong. Stop sinning. You, you, what, what is your problem? Just stay connected right here and, and make the right choice and do things right. And, you know, are you even a Christian? Like, I can't, like, what are you even doing here at church? Like, People, people know if they find out about you, things are going to be horrible. Like, what's wrong with you? Get your act together. But he doesn't work that way, does he? He doesn't work that way. He grabs us. He grabs our hand. He says, follow me. Take my yoke upon you. That yoke is an easy yoke. It's well fitted for you. Follow the unforced rhythms of grace. Learn from me. Follow me. Invest in me. And as you do that, fruit will be produced. The fruit of the Spirit will be produced. It's not a heavy burden. It's not a you're so wrong and full of condemnation and, and frustration kind of a thing. It's a whispering. It's a gentle whispering. It's the Holy Spirit who leads and guides us. So keep in step with the Spirit. As Monica said, we're going to be journeying through all of our campuses reading the one-year Bible and looking at the message translation. I thought uh, just a couple of verses that really highlight this well through the message about this idea of keeping in step with the Spirit. The first one is in Matthew 11, uh, 28, one that's familiar to us. Jesus says this, are you tired? I just pause and say, yeah. <laughs> are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn from me. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep in company with me, and you'll learn how to live freely and lightly. And then in John 15, live in me. Make your home in me, just as I do in you. And in the same way that a branch cannot bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine, you cannot bear fruit unless you are joined with me. It's a partnership. And if we had time... In the previous chapter in John 14 is where Jesus actually promises the Holy Spirit. John 15, he starts talking about fruit and how to produce. But the only way that's possible is if we hold on to the truths of what he said in John 14, that another, the Holy Spirit, is coming to be with you. Because through that relationship, we do the things that God has called us to do. Not through our own strength. Not through just a hard resolve that says, I'm going to get this thing done. If that's how you set out for this year, you're going to be met with disappointment. You're going to be met with failure and shortcomings. There's another way, another power available to us. The fourth thing that Paul says in this passage, in chapter 6, verse 8, he says, so into the Spirit. So into the Spirit. There are a lot of things that we can invest in this year, aren't there? We can invest in our health, our finances, our relationships, and those things are all important and things that we should be concerned about. But there's only one thing that we, if we invest into it, that will have yields in all areas of our life. And that's sowing into the thing that is the most important, the main thing, our relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Sowing 
into the Spirit, making time for a relationship with Him, developing a prayer habit that, that's, that's routine and becomes normal, reading His Word, living in community with one another, not forsaking meeting together, making those things important. And I know that could easily start to sound like, well, that sounds like works. Read my Bible, pray, come to church. But actually, it's not a works-based thing. When we do these things out of a posture of thankfulness for what God has done for us, you'll be amazed. I'm telling you, you'll be amazed by the way that fruit just naturally comes out and is produced through you as we stay connected to the vine, as we sow into the thing that is most important. And what is the outcome of a life that is guided, that is led by the Holy Spirit? In Galatians 5.16, Paul says, you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. That's a good thing. He says you'll be a person who produces love, joy, peace, kindness, and the list goes along on the fruits of the Spirit. And if I'm honest for me, there's a temptation to say, I can do this. Watch me. I can do this by myself. I'm a professional Christian after all. I can manage all these things, and I can make sure that my prayer life and everything is good, and, and I can get things right. But I've been in that trap before, and often what ends up happening is I begin to produce more fleshly stuff than spiritual stuff. In my own strength, flesh comes out, sin comes out, things are exposed. And when that happens, I begin to feel guilty and condemned and, and feeling like, why am I messing up? Why have I done things wrong? And well, there's this tension inside of me. And maybe you're, you're in that place today where you're maybe new to this whole faith journey and, and you've had some amazing things happen in 2013. But maybe you've encountered some difficult things and you're wondering, is this even worth it? Like, can I even do this? Should I even be here today? The message of the gospel is, yes, you should, that you're in exactly the right place, that there is grace afforded to you beyond your strength that will help you to live a life beyond the life that you could live in of yourself. And actually, as a Christian, a Christian is not a person who experiences the absence of bad desires, but a Christian is a person who is at war with those desires. It's not the absence of temptation. It's not the absence even of sin and, and, and these bad desires. But are you one that will be at war with those things, that fights against those things? And more importantly, what will you choose? What will be your weapon to fight against those things? Will it be just a resolve and a discipline of yourself to say, I've got to stop standing, i got to stop sinning. I can't, I can't have that thought. Which thought? Oh, that thought. Oh, I just thought that thought. Not again, right? We can't do that. But actually relying on the Spirit to do what we cannot do for ourselves. The way to walk by the Spirit and not fulfill the desires of the flesh is to hear the promises of God contained in His Word through prayer, by faith, trusting in them, delighting in them, resting in them, and receiving them. A posture of openness. You know, we just celebrated one of the greatest miracles, right, of Christmas, of the divine invading our present time and place, coming down, taking the posture of humility, to give and make available to us what we couldn't have for ourselves. He didn't come because, you know, we, we begged and we, and we made him come down somehow or we hyped him up. No, actually, he came because we needed him, because we were failing in and of ourselves, because we couldn't rescue ourselves, because we needed another way of salvation. And that, you guys, is the posture that I would encourage us to take this year for 2014. That, yes, it's important to have resolve. Yes, it's important to have discipline. But what is the posture of that resolve and that discipline? We be people who will partner with the Holy Spirit, that plead with him to make a change in us that we cannot make for ourselves. Just one last verse to close with here in Galatians 2. Paul really sums this up beautifully when he says, 
<clears throat> for when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all of its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. There's a lot of what Jesus has done, what God has done, what he has made available. And because of this, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. It's not an insignificant thing. For I keep the law, for, for if I was keeping the law, I could make, it could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. But his grace makes all the difference in our lives. Trusting, relying, and partnering with the Holy Spirit will produce change. You don't even have to worry about producing the change. It happens. It's a natural overflow. It's promised by God, by the Holy Spirit. So let's do this. Why don't we stand together as we make time to worship, to respond to God's word. Just going to pray over us. Jairus is going to lead us in response. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. God, we thank you that you have sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to be the kind of people that you've called us to be. And God, we thank you that we don't have to do that in our own strength. We thank you that as we're connected with you, as we're led by you, that you promise that you will produce the fruit in our lives. God, would you teach us what it means to be led, to be connected. Show us God, what that means to walk in relationship with you in a greater capacity this year. Feel us even now as we worship you. There's nothing worth more that will ever come close. No thing can compare. You're our living hope. Your prayers are. Life tasted and seen. Of the sweetest of love, where my heart becomes free and my shame is undone. Your prayers are so we sing, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this. And fill the atmosphere. Your glory, God, is what our hearts. 